0: Uh, 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 yeah. Very spooky. Hey, hey, quick outfit change. Quick outfit change because we're here to tell you about some Patreon updates. <laughs>
1: If you're not on Patreon yet, if you haven't gotten lost in the triangle or sucked into the pyramid scheme,
0: where have you been? Where have you been? It's okay. Get sucked. You're never too late to get sucked. And so we're here to tell you about some of the updates we have. So we have three tiers on Patreon. We have a Devil's Hour Insomniac, which is the $3 tier. Ill-gotten booty poppers at $10. And then if you're feeling extra spicy... Oh, Flirty. A little flirty. We have an only phantoms tier at $20. So let us tell you what you get because we continue to add perks every so often, every few months. Do you want to start? Yeah. Okay. So if you are a devil's hour insomniac, let me tell you what you get. You get to join us every single Tuesday live on Patreon through an app called Crowdcast, where we do campfire stories. So it's brought back Mm. every Tuesday night, If you join our Patreon at any tier, you get access to campfire stories. You also get access to see what our upcoming topic is going to be for the following week. So you get to send in suggestions, send in emails with your encounters for a better chance of it being read on the episode. You'll be sent a Two Girls, One Go sticker. You'll also get our theme song as a ringtone. And I'm sure people, if they follow us on social media, probably remember this from last December. But we do send out a holiday card. And last time we sent a little a little witchy one from Salem. Yes. If you are an ill-gotten booty popper,
1: you better be popping that booty, getting down with Andrew Ranson. But you get everything that Corinne just listed in the... Devil's Hour Insomniacs tier. Plus you get bonus content. So we have bi-weekly episodes of us covering what's new in paranormal news. So basically we just find things on TikTok, on the internet, things that you send us about the paranormal
0: space. If you're like, why aren't they telling us about the aliens that just came and abducted people? We are, but we're doing it on In Paranormal News. Oh yeah. We have special videos and
1: behind the scenes. So while we're together, especially with the upcoming tour, Corinne and I are going to be doing short vlogs of our, you know, traveling on planes together and in the car and go to haunted locations Mm -hmm. and are on stage. We're going to put together little videos of our time together and post them on Patreon if you're in the ill-gotten booty poppers and above.
0: If we have live shows, you get first access to tickets, early access. And if you missed the early access to the pre-sale tickets for our Two Girls, One Ghost fall tour at The Conjuring House, when we sell out venues, we are attempting to add additional shows. So it's still worth joining the Patreon because you will get pre-sale access then. We also are going to
1: post live shows on Patreon for those in ill-gotten booty poppers and up to watch exclusively. And then you get access to Discord channels that only Patreon members get access to. So you get more direct access to us and 10% off of Two Girls When Go merch. And we might have a special event coming up after the tour that you might want to keep your eye out for. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. I can't wink. I'm bad at it. Oh, ho. And then for the cream of the crop, the cherry on the cake, the only phantoms, unfortunately, I am not doling out pictures of my feet yet, Mm -mm. but
0: you get everything that we just talked about. And what else, Corinne? We do live streams every single month. The topic changes. What we do changes. Sometimes we paint together. Sometimes we have heart to hearts. Sometimes we have seances. It really just depends on the month, but it's so fun every single time. And then also as of August 1st, we are releasing our episodes one day early on Patreon for our only phantoms to listen to ahead of everybody else. Ad-free and early. hmm hmm And if you're like, hey, what are you guys doing with your lives? You're going to find out. Good question. You're, you're going to get access to our close friends list on Instagram. That is my Instagram, Corinne Vienne, Sabrina's Instagram, Tiger, and our Two Girls, One Ghost Instagram. So we'll get a lot more personal and you'll see maybe... Stuff you didn't want to, but you will. (laughs) All the stuff. We also are starting to bring some of our book discussions from the book club that exists out there uh, for Two Girls, One Ghost. We're going to have some quarterly book club hangs where we're discussing some of the books that you guys are reading, some of the books that we're reading. We'll also have discounted merch, both in the Only Phantoms tier and Ill-Gotten Booty Poppers tier. So there's different discounts and codes for each of those tiers. Discord benefits. And then also an exclusive t-shirt just for you guys so check it out join our patreon join us we love you all it's so much
1: fun it's just fun to connect you on a deeper level Mm -hmm. and um if you don't have enough of us talking on our (laughs) podcast feed join us on patreon where there's so many more hours of it (laughs) (laughs) see you there see you there hey hey (laughs) i don't know what to celebrate This is two girls, one ghost. Two girls, one ghost. The we are your hostesses. That's Corinne. Hi. I'm Sabrina. Corinne, you're turning 30 in like three days. Our podcast is turning six in like 14 days. I'm turning 30 in 20 days. So 26 days. Forget about me. Corinne, happy
0: almost birthday. What do you mean, forget about you? Like, I'm so far away. Thanks, but no, it's, it's. I feel comfortable celebrating everything all in one go. I feel like that makes me feel at ease more than like attention on me. It's attention on us and our podcast collectively. We can celebrate you separate down when it's your time in a couple of weeks. But for me, let's celebrate me and you. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, you know what? I'm going to take a minute. I don't care what you want. <laughs> happy birthday to me, man. <laughs> I already told you this, but I woke up teen angst today, man. I I was out I love for it. blood. And then you told me that my blood thirsting, lurking, lurk, searching, my blood searching words were too kind.
0: <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. You were like, I just sent the most angsty teen text message. And I was like, really? And you were like, yeah, here's what I said. And I was like, that is a polite and courteous text message. <laughs> Uh, For next time, here's how I would word it differently if you're trying to get some real angst behind your words, because the person who's reading that is not probably going to (laughs) read it the way that you meant it to be read.
1: I'm going to outsource my angst to you, Corinne.
0: (laughs) You know what? This is is what AI is good for. Next time you want to write a text message, ask AI, say like, this is what I want to say, but make it a teeny teen girl angst, and then maybe it will give you a rewrite.
1: Oh, you know what I was thinking as I was in my, I'm still in my angsty mood. So
0: watch out whoever's listening. Sorry, grin. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) Your angst won't work on me because I'll just celebrate it. I'll be like, yes, do it. Like, yes, you're being mean, finally. Like, even if you're rude to me, I'd be like, you're doing it. You're doing such a good job. (laughs) If anything, though, you'll critique me. Be like, was that supposed to be mean, Sabrina? What did you actually mean to say? You're too therapized is the the issue. But I've also always
1: been nice. I'm too nervous of hurting people's feelings. But then it's to a fault. Like, anyway, working on my angst. But that was what was i going to say oh i was thinking about how there's the movie 13 going on 30 and i was like
0: mm-hmm.
1: there should be a very like not even it's like maybe a psychological thriller of some kind where it's 30 going on 13 and it's a 30 year old in therapy doing all this work on themselves and they wake up it's like freaky friday they wake
0: up in their 13 year old body that truly just gave, that is a horror movie cuz that gave me so much anxiety thinking of having to go relive 13, right? No, that's a true, that's a psychological thriller. That is something that if someone goes see it in the movies, they're going to be sent to therapy after. The amount of people that I think would (laughs) do shadow work after watching that movie, astronomical. Yeah.
1: All right, I'm going to write it. Until then, I am going to take a second and praise you, Corinne, because, okay, you're turning 30. I've known you now for almost half of our lives. Could you, like, since we were 18, so not half our lives, a little bit more than a third of our lives. And my life, my life,
0: my life
1: (laughs) is astronomically better because you are in it. And I am so grateful that you gave that fun, haunted, fun fact that your house was haunted and you grew up in a haunted house all those years ago because look at us now.
0: I sent you something the other day that was like, we are each other's green people because I saw something online that was like, who's your green person? And a green person is basically someone who comes into your life and you don't really know why or how it just kind of happens, which is sort of, I mean, we know how Mm -hmm. because it was theater class, but (laughs) they come into your life and you just have this mutual love and respect for each other and you never judge one another and you're just always solidly there. And I feel like that is us for each other. So I texted you and I was like, you're my green person.
1: You're trying to turn this back onto me. So I'm going to continue. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, you rock in that chair. Oh my gosh. That is such a vibe. That is 30.
0: <laughs> this is 30. This is 30. Ooh, I'm sweating. <laughs> I literally have my, my sweatshirt on over here to show that I'm to try to cover my sports bra because I was like, no chance in hell I'm wearing a real bra today. <laughs> I'm not even wearing one. <laughs> this is 30. Let them This move. is 30. Do what you want.
1: Uh, but yes, Corinne, happy birthday. Thank you for being a part of our lives, my life. And thank you for doing this podcast with me, which brings us to our sixth year anniversary. Six years.
0: August 14th is the exact sixth year, which is so unbelievable. I can't believe that we wake up every day and do this for six years. It doesn't feel like six years. It feels like so much. It just like went by so much faster. It has gone by really, really fast. Than six years, which I think is a good sign. Cause you know, when you're in a job that you don't like, and it feels like you've been there forever. Yeah. Well, no, but yeah. And I feel like this is like, we've been doing this for three weeks. So that's a really good sign. I mean, it wasn't a job for a really long time. Now we're very lucky that it gets to be our job. But that's the crazy part is it's always been a job, but it's always felt like a hobby. Yeah, exactly. That's the beauty of it. So every single week for six years, you and I have read and told ghost stories. That's cool. That's so cool. Aside from four weeks of the year
1: total in six years, there's only four weeks that we didn't do that.
0: Oh, when we started taking a little hiatus in the winter. Yeah, yeah, but even so, I feel like we make up for that by having multiple episodes a week. So it's it's not just like once a week. Like we we tell like twelve ghost stories every single week for six years. That's true. Wow, that's really cool.
1: Well, here we are. We're still doing it. We're still at it. Now we're going on tour. We are truly. I think this episode comes out at the very end of August. Or no, wait, sorry. The, oh, this one comes out end of July. Something like that. It's the beginning of August, but we're also going on tour in a month, which is super exciting. But to celebrate all of the August festivities, your birthday, our six-year anniversary, my birthday, we have put together a
0: very special... What? let people guess. Oh, okay. Before you show what it is. Wow, well, never mind. I keep feeling like people just magically get to listen to this and it's in the title. It's in the description. Never mind. I'm like, wait, everyone, no one knows yet. Okay, well, for your birthday, before we get into it, I have a story for you. Okay. I'm excited for this one because you teased a little bit. Yes. Not really anything at all. You just said you collected a ghost you collected a story about Bigfoot. I was at a restaurant and there was a man
1: or a couple at the table next to me. And this man gets up, and I see he is wearing a Bigfoot shirt. And I was like, interest peaked? Yes. He's one of us. Yes. And I don't know how... Oh, they were getting up to leave. And... I go, I just like, I was like, you know, I'm just going to do it. I was like, I'm going to do like a little like shameless plug for myself. I have a podcast all about the paranormal. If you like Bigfoot, you'll like it. And we're actually about to do a whole segment on, I'm now I'm saying it on Bigfoot. And he goes, oh, I love Bigfoot. And then his partner goes, he's seen Bigfoot. (laughs) It always takes the partner to be like, wait, no, he actually has a real story. Yes, they come and sit down at the table, and he goes on to tell me that he himself has not seen Bigfoot. But as he's telling it, I was like, "I need it. I wish I was recording this." So I ended up taking notes. So I'm pulling my phone up to read the notes.
0: Okay, excellent.
1: So he grew up in Mendocino County in the Pacific Northwest, and his family grew up on a logger farm. This is very popular of of Bigfoot stories, logger land, logger farms. Lots of loggers. Lots of loggers who have seen Bigfoot. So he was not born yet, but his dad and his brothers all were living on this farm. They, like the whole family lived on this farm. So one night they woke up to one of the young kids crying and they go to find him. And he's standing in a room looking out the window and is complaining of the monster in the field. And he's saying, there's a monster, there's a monster. And he's so scared. They look out in the field. Everyone goes out searching and they find nothing. A couple weeks later, they wake up to their dogs going crazy and growling at the windows, the same area that the little kid had seen this monster.
0: Telltale sign of Bigfoot. Does your dog bark out the window? Bigfoot. That's what I think. If you're in logging country in California, it probably is. (laughs) So then they look out
1: and they see a glimpse of like a hairy creature. They don't think much of it. They're like, maybe it's like a deer, a bear, or, you know, something. But they're like, this is weird that it's triggering such an intense response. There was a horse farm down the road. and I think it was called Sybil Horse Farm. And they were dealing with a lot of menaces. Basically, like, their horses would be let out and things would go missing. And it, they thought, like, basically a human was vandalizing their property or coming on at
0: night and messing with their land in their farm. But messing with livestock is yet another sign of Bigfoot. I know. I understand why they wouldn't immediately think of that though. You know, they might think that there's some like rival logger or just someone kind of like stalking them and- Or teenagers. And just or, sneaking, no. sneaking around their property at night. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: makes me think of nope. There's like that part where in the, oh, mm-hmm. where it, is, it ends up being a bunch of kids, you know, but like, then later it's not. Anyway- So this farm is having all these problems. They reported to the authorities. And then another night, this farm reports, like going, like hearing some like ruckus outside, they go and they find their dogs like curled up, terrified in the barn, like so scared. So again, like animals reacting and they're talking about this. So this is like kind of common knowledge and this man's family is talking to Sybil Farm and they're all sharing their stories. And they're like, is there a human who's just like lurking around the property and causing trouble? And should we be concerned? And how do we find this? So they continue to see and experience things. And so they finally, they're like, okay, with the cops, let's kind of do a stakeout. So they get in the car with one of the cops. At this point, this is his dad and his uncle. And so they are in the car with the police officer. They have one of those like mag lights that, you know, you can see a lot of area. And all of a sudden late at night, they hear growling coming from the woods. So they go and like shine the light towards the woods and they see this massive hairy creature. Oh my God. (laughs) The police saw it too? Yes. And then in a minute or like not even in a second, it was gone but they all saw it. So they're like, oh, this is not a human. That is, that is Bigfoot.
0: I want to know what's written in the police reports, what they admitted to seeing. Yeah.
1: And I don't know if it's in a police report. I mean, it sounded like they were buddies with the cop, you know, so I'm not really sure. But anyway, that was his dad's experience. So he grew up very like, you know, with this story, he grew up on the logging farm and, you know, they would be out in the field and telling each other like, pails of Bigfoot and watch out for Bigfoot, those kinds of things. And that's just how he grew up. So he very much believes. And then he said one time he was fishing down like in a lake in that area. And he saw a creature come out of the woods and it had like a deformed face and like a lot of hair and it like was eating like a fish and it was just terrifying and so he gets up and like starts to run and he's with his brother and his brother's like dude it's just a moose and like the it was a moose <laughs> I was thinking like a bear with mange or something. Right. It had kind of come through the woods and so it had like tree on it and it had like <laughs> stuff from the water from putting I its mean, head.
0: Yeah. Moose are pretty scary looking. They're huge too. I feel like people don't realize how big moose are. They are massive. They are a school bus size practically. Yeah. But anyway, I got so excited that I got
1: a Bigfoot story right before we recorded this. And I was like, hell yeah. Happy birthday, Corinne. Here's Bigfoot.
0: I know. I'm so happy about this. <laughs> I keep like fantasizing going to that family farm and seeing Bigfoot. Although honestly, after all of this research, I'm like, it's such a toss up what you kind of get to experience when you do encounter a Bigfoot. Yeah. I want to see one from a distance, not up close. I feel like you would do it up close if you knew it
1: would be a positive experience.
0: Yes, if it was a friendly Bigfoot. If it wasn't like some territorial dispute or a mother Bigfoot protecting her babies. You know, just a, just like a, a dumb kid Bigfoot who's curious and doesn't know what it's supposed to do yet. One of those, maybe. You want the Twilight
1: carried on their back, jumping through trees Romantic moment.
0: Yeah, I do. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Oh, as soon as there's like a CGI AI where you can create scenes for yourselves, I'm definitely saying recreate that one scene in Twilight, but with me on Bigfoot. Dude, I think you can. Can you? Not just art, though. I want like a full video version. No, I think you can. I'm going to, I'm
1: going to find it and
0: that's going to be your birthday present. Okay. (laughs) I'm excited. Okay. Should we give some context to this? Yeah, let's do it.
1: Okay. Well, the context that everyone needs to know is that Corinne loves Bigfoot.
0: That's, that's the, the biggest part of all of this. And we're recording this whole series while I'm in New Jersey. And guess what? I forgot to pack
1: your Bigfoot is my boyfriend shirt. Yeah.
0: I was like, "How embarrassing for me!" But everyone knows it, so it's fine. I don't have to advertise it. Did Brian bring his Sasquatch? <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, so yeah, I have no Bigfoot memorabilia to wear, but it's—I wear it on my heart. I wear it on my sleeve. He is in your heart. It comes from within. I didn't. I don't have mine either. So that's
1: both of us are. Um, I wore a wildflower shirt because that feels close to.
0: It does. We frolic through the wildflower fields with Bigfoot. Beautiful. Anywho.
1: So we were in Portland, Maine, and we visited the
0: Cryptozoology Museum, of course. First stop with our Holy Donut. Quite literally. Well, we went to Holy Donut and then ate the donuts in the car on the way to the Cryptozoology Museum, which is exactly how you're supposed to do Portland, Maine. Exactly. Exactly. And
1: while we were there, we were like looking at all this stuff and there's just so much information about Bigfoot. There's so many stories from all over the world that we were like, what if we do a multi-part Bigfoot episode situation for our anniversary?
0: It's the first ever three-parter and when better to do it than our birthdays and sixth year anniversary we can do whatever we want. It's been six years. So yeah, we are going to spend three weeks talking about Bigfoot.
1: <laughs> but it's also so fun because a lot of the stories do happen in the summer months, like August, September, like a lot of the things that I was researching did occur in these months. So it feels like, it feels like we are
0: in Bigfoot territory and Bigfoot season. So yeah, well, I'm glad that you you feel that because I have a lot of wintery stories. So I guess we're going to get a well-rounded year-round Bigfoot. It's always Bigfoot season, baby. And then we're going to turn into a Bigfoot podcast. (laughs) This is like my dream, I hope. Here's the thing. If if people listening aren't interested in this Bigfoot stuff, give me a break, okay? Because I have never covered Bigfoot in my six years, which has been really hard to do. And so we deserve this three-part episode.
1: Also, you don't need to believe in Bigfoot for this because if anything, it's just a really, there's so many fun stories, whether you believe or not.
0: It's the same with ghost stories, you know? You don't have
1: to believe to enjoy them. And also I will
0: say, I think the Bigfoot stuff is really fascinating because there is so much that makes you waffle on, wait a second, could this creature be real? And, oh, wait, no, that's definitely fake. And then the next part is like, wait a second, but there's more evidence that could only mean that Bigfoot's real. So I think it's interesting because there's almost an equal amount in my mind, equal amount of points on either end. Okay. So let's start this series with a question, Corinne. Okay. I think I know the answer. I'm scared.
1: In a... Sixty second. This is what I believe. Do you
0: believe in Bigfoot or not? And why? 60 seconds. I absolutely believe in Bigfoot. I think that there are too many eyewitness accounts of Bigfoot to discredit them from being a possibility. I also think that the creatures that we have on Earth that could be attributed with possibly being a Bigfoot sighting don't have the strength and dexterity of what people witness and experience. When having Bigfoot encounters. Plus, there's so much land and so much densely forested areas that we have rarely, if ever, explored that I think a creature like this that could be a bit of a a recluse would easily be able to hide undetected. Plus, there are so many native people and tribes who protect what they find. And so I think while some people theorize, oh, wouldn't we have found bones and all of these other artifacts? I think that those things do exist. But those of us who are greedily looking for them do not have access to them. Okay. Was that 60 seconds? Yeah. I think that was pretty good.
1: And then, no, (laughs) I could keep going, but that's why I believe. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Do you believe? I want to believe So I'm really hoping that your episodes will convince me, but my current stance is I want to believe, but I'm reticent to believe because multiple reasons. If Bigfoot were real, I really do believe we would have evidence of it now. If, if it was a creature of the ocean, I'd be more understanding because we have not explored the ocean. And there are a lot of things in the ocean that we don't know. And I believe like there's a whole world down there that we haven't even thought of, but in terms of land, I do think we've explored a lot more. And if, especially if it's in our backyards, I feel like we would have way more evidence. And then too, if Bigfoot is an interdimensional being. Don't you think the government would have way more like of a reaction to Bigfoot's existence in the way that they do to aliens? Like, where is the men in black responding to Bigfoot? Where's, oh my gosh, we saw Bigfoot and all of a sudden, like all the evidence is taken away and missing and replaced by something else because the government has intercepted it.
0: How do we know that that's not true? Because no one talks about it and we have evidence. Well, yeah, it's, it's an intro. This is why Bigfoot is so difficult because you can argue both sides and there will be examples for both sides this whole time. So it will make people flip flop. But Sabrina, okay. Sabrina's a, a lukewarm, wants to believe, but doesn't believe currently. I'm a full fledged believer. Yes. That's certainly true. If Bigfoot walked in front of my window right now, I wouldn't even scream. I'd be like, Sup. It's gonna. Knew it. I believed in you forever. <laughs> Hello, friend. Go visit everyone else so everyone else can know. All right. Well, I look forward to being convinced. Yes. We're gonna split it this three-parter just to give people kind of like a, a, overview of what they're about to experience. The first episode, which I'm about to lead you through, is going to be about the origins of Bigfoot. Where did these stories come from? How did we first hear about them? Why is everyone so crazed with Bigfoot? Mm -hmm. The next episode will dabble into some of the fact or faked side of things. And then the last episode that we will do, the third one, uh, will be a little bit more on the theories like is Bigfoot an interdimensional being and some of the newer pieces of evidence that might lead you to wonder is Bigfoot real and will he come attack me when I go camping <laughs> I hope not I hope not either but if he does email us email email us immediately okay we're going to give we're going to buy everyone satellite phones so that they can get in contact with us always always We have a satellite landline. It's the Bigfoot line. It's the Bigfoot line. So we are going to start with a story about David Thompson. He was one of North America's greatest pathfinders and surveyors. And he would travel by foot, by horse, by canoe, all over north america all over the continent and he established the first permanent trading forts in much of north america so he was this really well-known explorer you know like mountaineer he was an expert woodsman essentially in the fall of 1811 so this is 200 years ago Well, wow, a long time ago yeah while traveling through Canada, he wasn't able to take his planned route, and so instead he followed the Athapasca River, and then he journeyed up Athapasca Mountains over the Athabasca Pass, and it was a very long journey. It took multiple months to complete, and David Thompson kept a journal with him while he was doing all of his travels, and he would record notable milestones and progress. Now, David, an expert in navigating uncharted territory, and at this point, had spent the majority of his life in the wilderness. He'd already spent 26 years navigating the wilderness. So he was super familiar with this continent. It was very peculiar given all of his history and all of his experience when on one of the trips, he noticed something odd. And it was in this journey in the Athapasca region. On January 7th, 1811, David wrote from the mouth of the Whirlpool River. Okay. Here's what he said. Quote, continuing our journey in the afternoon, we came on the truck of a large animal, the snow about six inches deep on the ice. I measured it. Four large toes each of four inches in length, to each a short claw. The ball of the foot sunk three inches lower than the toes. The hinder part of the foot did not mark well, the length fourteen inches by eight inches in breadth. Walking from north to south and having passed about six hours, we were in no humor to follow him, and the men and indigenous guides would have it to be a young mammoth, and I held it to be the track of a large, old, grizzled bear. Yet the shortness of the nails, the ball at the foot, and its great size was not that of a bear. Otherwise, that of a large, old bear, his claws worn away, this the indigenous would not allow. So basically, he was saying that they all had different theories as to what this thing could be. Some people were like, could this be a mammoth? Which went extinct, what, 2,000 years ago, but really, it was something like 50,000 years ago because they were, the mammoths that went extinct 2000 or like 5,000 years ago lived on a really secluded island. So it wouldn't have been a mammoth. No. And a bear wasn't capable of becoming that large in size that they knew of. And it sounds like the indigenous people wouldn't accept it as a bear. Like they were like, no. Yeah. We do not accept that theory. Totally. And David Thompson would later state that in the group of men who accompanied him on his journey, four of them were hunters. And then a lot of the other group were indigenous men who were helping guide them through the area. And he said that the hunters made it very clear that they had no intention of following this creature because based on the size of the tracks... And how deeply they imprinted in the snow, they weren't certain that their guns would hold up against a creature of this size. So these were, these were like trophy hunters. And they were like, I don't want to fuck around and find out. Let's just move on.
1: What is also interesting about that is as experts, they have seen so many bear footprints and they would know and be able to be like, yeah, that's a bear. But they they were like, no, this is not a bear. We're
0: trying to find some way to justify it, and we can't. So David Thompson is sometimes credited with the first discovery of a set of Sasquatch footprints from discovering these footprints here. But it's important to note that indigenous people all across the world have been reporting this beast in these types of tracks for much longer, way before 1811, when David Thompson encountered this in Canada.
1: My question for you, and maybe you don't know the answer for this, but I've always wondered, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, are they all of the same? Are they all the same? Are they all of the same family? Because I feel like Yetis are white and Bigfoot te- like typically has the dark hair.
0: Yeah. So we don't know. Okay. No one's specifically... Basically, we're grouping them all together as one creature where there's variations of the coat but that they're all one creature and different cultures have different names for all of them. And I'll tell you how we got the name of Sasquatch and stuff like that. But we, we don't know because there's not been enough evidence to be like, oh, this is a, you know, this species is all related, but this broke off or whatever.
1: So it's kind of like they appear similar. They have similar characteristics. We, we group them together because of that, but we don't know much more.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I will also say that what I learned was that We think of yetis as being that like abominable snowman as being this white furry beast. And there's a lot of sightings that say that it's black or it's brown. And there are some in North America that say it's white. So it might just be different coats on these creatures and doesn't necessarily have to do with an area that they're from.
1: That's fair. I mean, humans have different hair color and different skin color. Like, why not? Why can't these creatures? Why
0: not? Why not? Why not? So now with so much travel and exploration in the 1800s, even back, you know, 1400s, 1500s, word is beginning to spread of these quote unquote wild men and these beasts who lived in these particular areas. The legend of the wild man spans many cultures. It's told over centuries and usually involves the wild man stealing food, livestock, or water from the civilized people in town. On some accounts, the wild man is extremely large, anywhere from six to 12 feet tall, hairy, omitting a foul odor, very human-like in that it's bipedal and moves on its hind feet, looks similar to a human when it is walking, and it has vocal communication, or rather it, it screams and wails and, <laughs> and warns trespassers, uh, and has a very high-pitched cry. I will also say that the wild man in some cultures isn't thought to be a actual physical beast at all, but rather is a ghost-like creature, someone who has passed away, usually involving water, whether it's on a boat or a river or drowning, um, and is kind of like a a person to help with the passage of other spirits. So it varies based on culture. Oh, that's kind of, that's beautiful. It is. Yes. And then, you know, there's, there's so many different, that's usually how it is in the indigenous cultures. And then as people in the future in more current time have looked back on all of these stories, people have theorized that part of the wild men stories, wild man stories is almost like us drawing upon who we used to be Mm, like caveman. Yeah. To, to further our, basically to like fear the wild parts of ourselves you know? Which, as I woke up
1: angsty, you should fear my wild part of myself.
0: (laughs) Apparently not. Also, your alien pillow in front of you right now almost looks like a costume, you know, when people like stitch kind of puffed (laughs) pillows and stuff onto like a white shirt
1: and wear it. I'm like riding his back.
0: Yeah. Okay. So while David Thompson found evidence of a Bigfoot-like creature, this wild man in Alberta, Canada. There were also now reports in the Himalayan mountains. So we're going straight into Yeti territory. Hell yeah. Himalayan Buddhists wrote of encounters with these animals for years and years and years and years, centuries. James Princep, an accomplished scholar of colonial India, also encountered some unknown creature in 1832, noting how giant and tall and hairy and ape-like it appeared to be, and how quickly it fled once it realized people were near and had detected its presence. So this is also going to be a common theme throughout most of the encounters with Bigfoots and Yetis and whatever we want to call them, is that they do appear to be a little bit more skittish and try to avoid humans. They're shy. They're just shy little, shy little beings. But then if they feel threatened, don't fuck with them. They attack. In 1889, Major Lawrence Waddell was traveling through the eastern range of the Himalayas near, near Darjeeling, India, and while passing glaciers, he and his crew spotted large footprints. The local guides told him that the footprints belonged to the wild man, but Waddell, having never seen these prints before and not quite believing in the wild man, thought perhaps maybe it belonged to a bear. So 30 some years, after Lawrence Waddell encountered those footprints, in 1921, there was a British expedition to summit Everest led by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Burry, and on their ascent, the Sherpas discovered large human-like footprints in the snow, believing them to be of the wild man. Reports on this findings were translated to English, and some of the words were translated incorrectly. So the guides, when telling the people that they were guiding what this creature was, what the footprints were left by, they said Mato Kangmai, which essentially means man, bear, snowman. Snowman was translated correctly, but Mato was mistranslated to filthy. And then in the translation, they thought that, oh, actually abominable would sound better than filthy. And so this was the original report that made the name Abominable Snowman.
1: What makes me laugh about that is not only was it mistranslated, then it was very purposefully
0: changed. Like, mm, yeah, then they pulled out their thesaurus and they were like, well, what sounds better? What's catchier? Well, Abominable Snowman, that's very catchy. That has stuck for a long time. That is better than Filthy Snowman. It definitely is. It sounds nicer for some reason, even though it's still not great. Yeah. Okay, so we're still in the Himalayan mountains. In 1925, N.A. Tambazi, a Greek photographer, was in Nepal up in the Himalayan mountains, about 15,000 feet in elevation. This was where he encountered a tall... Naked figure in the distance. He said the figure in outline was exactly like a human being walking upright and stopping occasionally to uproot or pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes. It showed up dark against the snow, and as far as he could make out, didn't appear to be wearing any clothing, but he couldn't get too great of a glimpse of this creature. But he said two hours later, as he and his group were descending the mountain, they encountered strange footprints believed to be left behind by this man-like figure that they had seen 2 hours prior at the time he had assumed that this was a person this is kind of sad like a person outcast from society someone who was living more of an off-grid lifestyle which is why he probably didn't take any pictures but it wasn't until later that he realized what he had seen was exceptionally odd and what he had seen this sort of like naked unclothed person could have been a Bigfoot creature, especially with the prints left in the snow. Just 30 years later, we're about to get some photo proof. 30 years later, British explorer and highly respected Everest explorer Eric Shipton was looking for an alternate route up Mount Everest alongside fellow explorer Michael Ward and famed mountaineer Tom Bordillon. They were west of Mount Everest on the Nepal-Tibet border, When Eric Shipton spotted a humanoid footprint in the snow, he placed his ice pick next to the footprint, as well as his own boot, and snapped a picture. I'm going to show you.
1: Wait, I'm so excited. I love, because this one's going to have a lot
0: of, this whole series is going to have a lot of photos. Okay, you can see it against the axe, and you can see it against his boot, and then you can see the prints continue down the mountain.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, whoa. Okay, this is the thing that really gets me is it does look so human-like, but it's barefoot
0: and it's massive. Yeah. It's so wide. And then the toes, there are like three or four toe prints up at the top. And then it's almost like a thumb on the side, but it's it looks a lot like a monkey's foot. If you look up an ape footprint, it looks so much like an ape. A lot of people will say it's like it's a gorilla, but
1: then a lot of the sightings, it's like there are no gorillas like this in this
0: area. Yeah, I know. In certain climates, they're like, oh, it's an escaped chimpanzee. And it's like, maybe, but how do you explain (laughs) a chimpanzee on the top of Mount Everest? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I think we would see that. That's also very strange. Yeah, it's very strange. Okay. So the footprint in the photos, if you're watching on YouTube or on Instagram, if you're checking out the carousel that we post, the footprint wasn't much bigger than Eric's foot in his hiking boot, but it was large. It was very wide and about 13 inches. And the footprint was very clear. It left a sharp imprint in the crispy snow below. And the large toe was very thumb-like like a primate. And the width placement of the toes definitely was clear that it was not left by any human. And it certainly wasn't from a bear either. So a lot of people say that all of these footprints that they see could definitely be from a bear. So I pulled a bear's footprints in the snow for us to reference. And that sure as heck did not look like a bear's foot. I really can't tell. Really? Maybe if we did a side-by-side. Yeah, we need to do side-by-side. Okay, so the bear's foot, it's much more of like a short mound, it's almost like a ball, and all of the toes seem to be next to each other nicely. You know, it's not not quite like what we just saw on Mount Everest. If you want photos, everyone, if you want to see all the photos we're
1: referencing, come view us on YouTube.
0: Check out YouTube. So the footprints that they saw, they went on for about 1 mile and then appeared to descend down a glacier. So this thing, whatever this thing was, was traversing this really, really difficult terrain. Eric and the other men were highly respected in their fields. And so what's interesting is I feel like with a lot of other sightings of Yetis and Bigfoot and And all these different creatures, Yowie in Australia, that a lot of people assume immediately that this is a hoax. But because Eric and the other men were so highly respected, this being a hoax was almost never in the question. Like, it was immediately accepted as proof of some unknown creature navigating the harsh mountainscape. And the evidence of said creature being a rogue footprint and also many oral stories from the locals that had been passed down for centuries and were currently being encountered too. Because a lot of the time there were Sherpas, there were Nepali people and and mountaineers and locals and indigenous people who were also contributing to these stories and to these sightings. It wasn't just the American and British folk who were going to Mount Everest. Right. It's not us just making up stories. Yeah. And another thing is it's not like a lot of these people heard the stories and then went looking for this creature. They saw the creature and then asked what they'd seen and then were told the stories. Yes. Okay, so with the new moniker of Abominable Snowman and photo proof of a footprint in the snow, this creature who had been encountered for centuries was suddenly rising to fame and everyone in America and in Europe suddenly wanted to know more about the Abominable Snowman. And this is what triggered a hunt for the Yeti. So yeah, before people weren't seeking it out, but now they were. Okay, what year is this again? It was in the 1920s, 1925. Okay, okay. So there'd been sightings already for over 100 years, but really it was the photo proof that got people sort of jazzed and talking about what could this creature be. Yeah, okay. Okay. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary also spotted mysterious human-like footprints while ascending Mount Everest. All these stories of people seeing this on Mount Everest is so mind-boggling to me because I'm like, people would never see this now, right? There's so many people who hike Mount Everest. It's so clogged. It's like a crazy tourist attraction now. Yeah. Isn't it also like so dangerous it's one of the most dangerous peaks in the world. Yeah. Two things. It
1: makes me sad because if this was Bigfoot's territory and they are or the Abominable or the Filthy Snowman, then, and it's shy, did we then kick it off of its land? And two, the fact that it is so dangerous and kind of a deadly, like a lot of people die up there. One from like altitude, being unable to breathe. And then also two, like from misstepping, there's like portions where you feel like traverse
0: Anything could happen.
1: Yeah. Like that also just makes it so much more impressive of a feat, pun intended, that these creatures can go around and like, this is like easy for them. It's just their regular
0: Monday morning. Totally. And also, I guess there's so much of Everest that isn't, that people aren't able to walk up. So maybe the Yeti is still hanging out over there and, and making his path. I have no idea, but I just imagine that those easier routes, which are now the routes that humans take, which are still so incredibly dangerous. And I think it's something like if you summit, you have a 25% or 75% chance of making it back down. So, like, 25% of people die before ever getting to come back down from the top, the peak of Mount Everest. It's just so wild that when there were so few people up there, that they were basically just. St- encountering on all of this land and this huge mountain. There were so many people were encountering this creature. So it does seem like it was there for a long, long time before humans started to be like, let's go see if we can survive.
1: Yeah, that's true. It does remind me so much of the monsters Inc. scene where Sully and Mike get kicked out and like into the snowy mountains and team up with the Abominable Snowman up in the mountain. I don't even remember
0: that scene. Sully and Mike get in like a huge fight. They like sled down. I I truly don't remember. And I think it's because I've watched Monsters University so many times since Monsters Inc. came out. So that's the only one that's really stuck in my head.
1: I'm really proud of myself for having a callback knowledge that you don't. Ah! (laughs) Happy birthday to you.
0: <laughs> Go Teen Sabrina. Woo! One for one for you. Woo! <laughs> one point for Sabrina. 10 points for Hufflepuff. <laughs> Wait, are you a Hufflepuff? I'm a Hufflepuff. Yes, clearly because I can't be mean. <laughs> <laughs> I was like Ravenclaw, no that sounds wrong. Hufflepuff. Yeah. Okay. In 1953, This is when Sir Edmund Hillary spotted the human-like footprints while ascending Mount Everest. These footprints were far too large to belong to any person, but Sir Edmund Hillary was not yet ready to admit that it could be this Yeti-like creature. In fact, he said, quote, we shouldn't go just Yeti searching. We should study how people live at the high altitude. So basically, he believed that maybe there were these people, the subset of people who had, I guess, I guess broken off centuries before, thousands of years before, and had acclimated to this climate and were living barefoot 20,000 feet above sea level while everyone else was basically dying getting to the top. He thought there might be a bunch of humans that just live here and we don't know, which isn't a horrible theory.
1: I do appreciate the scientific approach of, okay, let's just try to understand how someone could live up here because... If this creature is bipedal and exhibits similar traits to humans, perhaps it is an evolved human who just evolved in a different way based on their climate.
0: Perhaps it is. Could be. And so he was determined to see. And so he built a house at 19,000 feet and did a bunch of experiments to see how human beings could acclimate to the weather up there uh, and the lack of oxygen. And I don't think he left assuming that the Yetis were human. I think maybe he started to warm up to the idea that Yetis were not human beings, or at least he wouldn't ever be able to prove this with such a short period of time in human history.
1: Yeah, he would have to like create a compound that lived up there for centuries. He would not. Ne- he wouldn't
0: live. No, he would not live. Yeah, exactly. It's the longest longitudinal study ever. He'd have to be like, my great 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 granddaughter Better keep up with this reporting. Yeah. A year later, the Daily Mail <laughs> conducted a Yeti expedition, and supposedly they found a Yeti scalp. A scalp? The test runs that were ran on the scalp were inconclusive, but very likely to be from a brown bear or an unknown bear from the area that was closely related to the Himalayan brown bear, which I guess is a pretty rare bear. Hmm. Okay. How did they run the tests on that? Because
1: this is before DNA and stuff, right?
0: Yeah. I don't know how the Daily Mail ran the tests. I'm assuming they probably brought it to some sort of like zoologist or someone, because I will say there's a lot more evidence that does get DNA tested and there's a lot of scalps <laughs> involved and it's usually some sort of goat hide or bear hide that's kind of stitched together to look like a cap,
1: a hairy little bloody cap. Oh, so it's like falsified. People are trying to make it look like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's like the mermaids, you know, where they're like stitching together fish and monkeys I will say the effort that some
1: people go through and put into falsifying evidence is 10 out of 10. I know. People are really committed. What what you could be putting that energy into otherwise? I don't, you know, let's
0: not get into it, but my goodness. I will I will give a warning now too to anyone who's who's considering being a hoaxer out there. I think having a hoax was a lot easier and simpler back in the day. But now I would warn you against trying to create this sort of hoax because if you go too far and if you don't admit that it's a hoax and you allow people to do certain testing, if you allow certain people to investigate and you're found to have made it up, now there's a lot of charges that are pressed against people for wasting energy and resources and time of these professional organizations. So it's not just like a ha ha you got us. It's like a here's a $20,000 fine. Yeah. Plus also,
1: if you believe in Bigfoot and you're willing to put together this elaborate hoax, you're actually doing the entire Bigfoot community a disservice because you're now making the entire public be like, "Well, see, everyone's faking it. Like why would we have any belief in the Bigfoot community?" or the creature itself.
0: Well said, Sabrina. So don't, thank you. Don't hoax us. Snaps. We're, we have the patience to just wait for Bigfoot to prove its own existence. Yeah. But American oil man, Tom slick did not have the patience. So he organized several expeditions and spent six months in the field, looking for this creature alongside hundreds of other people with all the equipment that they needed to, because he was super rich from being in oil in America. Uh, So he brought hundreds of people. He brought expert high-tech equipment. He brought bloodhounds in to track the scent of the beast. And Tom had a really big love for cryptozoology, and he had very deep pockets. And so he continued to keep the funding going expedition after expedition, even though they kept coming back empty-handed. And this is all in Mount Everest? This is, yeah, primarily in the Himalayas, yeah. Okay, okay. But there's one expedition in 1958 in a Buddhist monastery, and I'm gonna butcher this, but Pangboche, Nepal, and there was a shrine there, and the shrine had remains supposedly from a yeti. It had a hand of a yeti, and so expedition member Peter Byrne asked to take the hand, but the monks refused. They were like, "You can't take the hand. This is <laughs> this is in our shrine. This is a, a religious." structure like you can't just come in and take our take your paws off of our religious stuff. (laughs) Take your paws off of our yeti hand. And so Byrne was like, well, I found evidence of a Yeti and this is my sole mission. So he hatched a plan. He was going to steal the Yeti hand the next year he returned. So a full year later. So probably they didn't remember him. They didn't they weren't suspicious of him. And he secretly swapped out the Yeti hand with other bones a human hand where did he get the human hand great question i do not know <laughs> <laughs> but also i feel like if you really want human skeletons they're kind of wasn't harvard just in trouble again for this like body snatching is still happening and if he has deep pockets
1: he's probably like just talks to his business partner and she goes i need a hand
0: A real one. A human hand. My father and my father before him and the father before him, we all went to Carnegie or we all went to Harvard and and we'll just call up the medical department there and get a hand. Honestly, that's probably how it happened. You have any free hands? (laughs) I've got 20. Okay. So he swaps out the hand successfully and you'll never guess how he smuggles it out of Nepal. How? Famous actor, Jimmy Stewart, who was in It's a Wonderful Life. In movies like that he Jimmy Stewart and his wife are passing through India at the time, and Byrne is like, "Hey, can you smuggle this back to America for me if this is a really important hand, this put these bones so they wrap it up and Jim, Jimmy Stewart and his wife they wrap it up in their underwear and shove it into their luggage and are like, "No problem, see you back in America." and they stole. Jimmy Stewart smuggled a Yeti hand from a monastery. Why doesn't this guy burn just do that? I don't know because you know what? Actually, I think this is a brilliant part of his plan because if they, as soon as they notice that the Yeti hand is gone, who are they gonna assume? They're gonna assume that white guy from Texas or whatever. Not Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> right? But they're never gonna know that he had met up with this famous actor who's passing through India. And that the actor has it in his wife's underwear in her luggage. That is amazing. So crazy. Okay, so once the bones were successfully stolen from the monastery, they had them tested. At first, British primatologist William Osmond Hill, he looked at them and he was like, hmm, these might be of human origin. But upon further analysis, he stated that these bones were declared to be from an unidentifiable primate. So this hand is known as the Ping Che hand, and this hand then went missing for decades. So all we knew is this was maybe a Neanderthal hand, maybe it wasn't, but that it wasn't suspected to be a human hand, and then it was gone. So no further testing could happen. But more physical evidence began appearing. Sir Edmund Hillary, who had seen the footsteps on Everest and was like, I don't know, well, he returned to the area on a very highly publicized expedition in 1960 to 1961. And guess what he found? He found a Yeti scalp. So I'm going to show you a picture of the Peng Boche hand and the Yeti scalp. Oh, whoa. Oh, here's what's gross. The All of it? It's all gross. But especially gross is that when looking at photos of the scalp, there were, it was almost difficult for me to find a photo of the scalp alone because so many people had the scalp on their head, wearing it like a cap in the photos. That is very disturbing. I was like, that's gross. And I am not going to post those. Huh. Okay. Upsetting. So the hair is analyzed from the scalp and it is clear that this is not the scalp of a Yeti. It is fake. It's stitched together from the hide of a goat, just like the scalp that came far before it from the Daily Mail. Years later, the hand from the monastery resurfaced, and now it's being tested with more modern day technology. And it is found to be a human hand. It does not look like a human hand because it's not perfectly a human hand. It is bones from a human strung together to create the appearance of a large hand. So someone took a lot of time picking out bones from the human skeleton that could make this long primate like monster hand. So they're not
1: all hand bones. Like it's bones from different parts of the body to make it
0: bigger. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. It it probably is just a few people's hands put together. That's wild. And it just like, it feels like serial killer-esque. It does. It does. And it's, but it's hard because it's, so here's the thing. If you travel there now, a lot of the monasteries and a lot of the places along the Himalayan mountains, both on in Nepal, on the Chinese side, like all, that whole region, you'll find a lot of these quote-unquote yeti hands and scalps and parts of the body. And a lot of the times they're in monasteries. And so it's one of those things where it's like, is this... They're worshiping this thing. Are they truly believing that it's this thing, or is this part of their culture and their religion, and that they they worship this being? Kind of like you know when you go to a Catholic mass, and they're like the body of Christ, and you get this like little rice, wheat wafer, and you're supposed to be eating Jesus's body. Cardboard. Yeah, you get cardboard.
1: I I totally understand that, and it's very much like Greek gods, you know, back in the day where you would worship and. And then even like Buddhists, like you have these altars and even like witches, you know, we have altars to these spiritual beings that we believe in and we give them gifts and things. So I very much understand it. But to me, those are like very ethereal beings, whereas Bigfoot is supposed to be a very physical, living, breathing creature, which I know we'll get into like theories of what Bigfoot is later. But now you're like, cause you're not really convincing
0: me. Sorry, Karen, that I, that Bigfoot is real. Well, really episode three is going to be me trying to convince you. This is the beginnings of the origin of Bigfoot. So it's confusing because we're just starting to learn things. But now I'm kind of getting
1: convinced on my own that Bigfoot is actually like a god. <laughs>
0: wow. You really, hey, you know what? In, in one page from now, I'll tell you something that, that, is actually kind of in line with that a little bit. Oh, okay. So you might not be wrong.
1: I used to not be spiritual, but now, now I believe in something.
0: Yeah, you don't even believe as a... You believe in Bigfoot, not as a physical creature, but literally you worship him as your God. Quite the change from the start of this episode 40 minutes ago. Yeah, they say like, what if God is a woman? Well, what if God is Bigfoot? What if God is Bigfoot? I love this. This is the best day of my life. Okay. Happy birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. Okay. So the scalp from the Daily Mail from like 50 some years prior, whenever that was acquired, they still had it. And so now that there was DNA testing, they did more testing on this scalp because remember before it was like inconclusive and they thought, all right, we don't really know what it is, but it's probably a goat. It's probably a bear. It's probably something else. What was strange is when this was tested in 2014 at the University of Oxford, two of the hair samples, there were like 60 some hairs plucked from the scalp that were tested. Most of them came back as a goat, a bear, whatever. Two of the hair samples that were extracted did not match a goat or a bear from the University of Oxford. Instead, it appeared to be a match with a 40,000 year old fossil of a polar bear, not a modern day polar bear, an ancient dinosaur polar bear.
1: Okay. Well, okay. So I have multiple questions. One, did they test every single strand of hair on this thing? And and two, I want to understand the science of this and how the testing works, because do they need to have on record, on file, an artifact or a piece of this
0: ancient bear to compare it to. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it goes through, uh, basically they're looking for like the database through the database for DNA pair matching. I'm probably saying that incorrectly, but basically they're comparing the chromosomes and the DNA sequencing that they have on record for a variety of different animals to the DNA that they have extracted from these two hair samples and i don't know if they tested every single hair well i know that they didn't i know that they were somehow had access to like 80 some hairs selected 60 some to actually test and then two hair samples had weird matching um okay so that's what the university of oxford said but then the university of copenhagen was like hold up let let us test this too and they're like um this is this is not from this old ass polar bear this like there was a mistake basically in the in the sequencing And so they believed it was from a rare, a very strange mistake, but instead they thought it was from a rare Himalayan bear. (laughs) But then a zoologist from the University of Kansas was like, I will also run the DNA. And they said it cannot be assigned to any species of bear that we have on record. It could be a bear. They're not ruling that out, but it's not belonging to a bear That we know. So it's an unknown species of bear, potentially, that exists in the Himalayas. And apparently, it's a bipedal one, according to all the witness, eyewitness reports.
1: See, this is what's this makes it even harder. It's like so inconclusive. That three different facilities test it and come up with different results. Right. It's like, there's no consistency. There's no, okay, at least two people. How is this not coming up the same for anyone? Right. Which then makes me question DNA evidence everywhere. Right. Like,
0: yeah. Or is this just something interesting with Bigfoot DNA? Is Bigfoot this weird analogous creature that, that somehow has copies the DNA of other creatures around it? Like it's a little bit of a mimic.
1: Interesting because people have said Bigfoot is a bit like a mimic and can even mimic voices. Shapeshifter. Yeah.
0: Which is another theory as to why Bigfoot has never been captured, too. Because if it does have shape-shifting properties, it can very quickly make itself disappear. Yeah. And Maybe that's why I spend so much time with livestock, to study how they move, study what they look like. Mmm. Creepy. Become the livestock. Method. Method
1: acting. <laughs>
0: Bigfoot's a <the> method actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So all the scientists and these hairs of from the Yeti scalp and DNA testing and yet we have no idea what this thing is. All right. So on another expedition, Tom Slick, he apparently witnessed, so this is the oil, American oil man. Tom Slick, he apparently witnessed a Yeti taking a poop. And then he went to that spot to retrieve the poop as evidence and have it tested. And when analyzed in the lab in Paris, so he sent it off to a Paris lab, it came back as feces with an unknown parasite in it and from what animal they could not tell. So, well, now I'm sad for for Bigfoot. Right. If parasites only passed on through Bigfoot's like that kind of stinks, makes me think like maybe we shouldn't get too close. What if what if an encounter with a parasitic Bigfoot is like the next wave of a plague for humanity? <laughs> could happen. Expeditions. Anything's possible. <laughs> Anything is possible. Wait, this makes me so sad. This morning when we were leaving, we left at like 5am to get to New Jersey. And it was like the wild, wild wild west in Boston. We were walking with our luggage to our car. And I heard this, and I look and a seagull has a mouse in its mouth. And then he drops it and the mouse runs. And then he gets it again. And I was like trying, I was like, (laughs) like, could not decide whether I was going to go save the mouse or stay with my luggage. And Brian was far in front of me by this point because he didn't realize I'd stopped to like witness this animal planet moment. And then he's like, Corinne, come on. And I saw this other man that was like walking up to the seagull. So I was like, oh, he's going to save the mouse. Instead, he just stands in front of it and like watches and then keeps going. He's, I mean, he was going across the crosswalk. He didn't like fully go up to, walk. I'm making him sound way worse, but he's like slowly <laughs> yeah. walked past I watched the pain of this mouse. <laughs> yeah. That's how it felt in my heart. I was like, save the mouse. The sequels get plenty of random shit from the trash. Don't let the mouse die. Anyway, I'm sure the mouse did. Yeah. RIP. Moment of, moment of silence. Moment of silence for the mouse. <sighs> Poor mouse. Okay. Thank you everyone. All right, so expeditions would continue to yield evidence of a yeti-like creature living in the Himalayas with physical sightings, hair samples that came up inconclusive, and many, many photos and castings of mysterious footprints turning up fairly often. And the sightings expanded far beyond Asia because North America had a creature of its own. In the 1800s, David Thompson had encountered the footprints in the northern regions of Canada. So this was the guy that we had first started on. Remember, he was like the mountain man, the wilderness expert who was traversing through the rivers and the mountains, and he found all of these footprints. And so for some time, it was kind of thought that maybe these creatures were cold weather creatures because a lot of the stories were coming from Canada or from the Himalayas. So perhaps they preferred the cooler air of the mountains and the thick brush to hide in. But this was certainly not true because the abominable snowman, the Yeti, the Bigfoot, the Yaoi, whatever we call them, they were definitely further south. 16th century Spanish explorers and Mexican settlers spoke of large creatures who stalked their camps at night. Two centuries later in Mississippi, a priest reported that there was a hairy creature in the forest who would scream loudly and steal their livestock. In 1843, decades after David Thompson's findings in Canada, Reverend Elkana Walker, a Protestant missionary, traveled to Spokane, Washington alongside other missionaries on their mission. And he wrote a letter about the race of giants that lived in the mountains nearby, according to the indigenous people that he spoke to. So he himself did not encounter them or see them. But he said, from what he was told, they cannot see well during the day. They hunt in the night. They sometimes come into town and steal salmon from the fishermen's nets. (laughs) Sometimes they kidnap the people. People will just like wake up in the middle of the night and be kidnapped by these creatures. What? The people know when the creatures are coming into town because these these giants, they are accompanied by the most foul of smells. They smell awful. And when they plan an attack, they throw stones at people's houses.
1: Which we've heard before. We've heard... Of Bigfoot throwing stones at people.
0: Yes. And so this is what really gets me. It's stuff like this. It's like, how do so many different cultures all across North America, in Asia, everywhere that there has been basically a Bigfoot sighting and reporting, they all say the same. It's like this hairy, large bipedal beast with a horrible smell that throws stones. Like it's always the same. The characteristics are the same. There's really no discrepancies. I don't know why, but I
1: so badly am just picturing and thinking of Bigfoot playing basketball, like a Bigfoot basketball league. Or maybe like shot
0: put or something like that's what they. Yeah. How far can they throw those down? They seem pretty athletic. They're extremely strong. I mean, think about the one that that one guy saw in Everest that he thought was just like a naked man. Yet he was literally watching this naked man pull trees and bushes from their roots out of the frozen ground. And he was like, must be a human. <laughs> it must be a very strong human. I'd love to see that. In 1847, French-Canadian painter Paul Kane, he wanted to f- paint Mount St. Helens. And so he traveled there. And he asked a group of people from the Multnomah tribe to guide him along the Lewis River to get a better viewpoint of the mountain. But they declined. They said, Nope, we will not take you there because that is where there is a race of giant, hairy cannibals. <gasps> cannibals? And this is something that comes up a few times too, where there's suspicion of Bigfoot being a cannibal. Oh, that makes me sad. I think it's. I think they're calling it a cannibal because in a lot of these cultures, they think they're calling it a hairy man. So they're still saying it's a human. Like it's this monster derived from who we are and it cannibalizes other humans. But it's not a cannibal if Bigfoot is not human. Right. Right. Correct. It would just be an animal. It would just be an animal. Yeah. Okay. A few decades later, there would be a national news story of gold prospectors shooting one of these creatures. So literally Bigfoot was shot in the late 1800s and the creatures then retaliated by returning that night to the cabin where these gold seekers were staying and throwing stones at the cabin. The same year that Paul Kane was attempting to paint Mount St. Helens, Theodore Roosevelt heard a very startling story from an elderly mountain man and seasoned fellow hunter, Bauman. Bauman said that he had been near the Salmon River between Montana and Idaho, and he had been hunting and trapping beavers with one of his friends. He and his buddy, they realized that they were being stalked by some creature. Initially, they thought it was a bear who was walking up on its hind legs from a distance, and it smelled so bad. It was omitting the most foul odor. And so while Bauman and his friend were kind of aware of this thing, they had left at one point from their camp to go check some of their traps. And when they came back from their camp, their camp was ransacked. And so again, they're thinking okay, maybe this is a bear. You know, like it's a classic bear move to go through and try to find fish or food, especially if this thing is tracking them and and seeing that, yeah, that they were Potentially near some fish or near some beavers or, or something. It's a little yummy snack for, for the bear. The day after their camp had been ransacked, Bauman alone left the campsite to go check the beaver traps. His friend stayed back at the campsite, especially because they didn't want it to be ransacked again. When Bauman returned, he found his friend dead. His <gasps> neck snapped. No. So he, at this point is so scared. He realizes they were not being stalked by a bear. He has no idea what this thing is, but he was theorizing that it was half human, half devil being. And so he just took off. He grabbed his rifle, left everything else, and just booked it out of there as fast as he could. And he later told this story to President Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, when the two were together. And Teddy Roosevelt said that the man, when he was retelling this story, even though it had happened. I mean, I shouldn't say even though it happened a long time ago because it's it's such a traumatic thing to experience. But he, Teddy Roosevelt said that he could see when this man was recounting these horrific details of the event, just how shaken up and terrified he was. He could barely get through the story. Jeez, this is wild.
1: And also my mind just keeps going back to how Teddy Roosevelt in the Ho- Hotel Colorado episode where I was talking about how he was made fun of because he was such a bad hunter. Like... Mm-hmm. probably in this moment being like, I'm so glad this didn't happen to me. And like, I wonder if it made him question his hunting.
0: Yeah. Or, or where he would go at least. Yeah. What, what things he would do, how many people he'd be with. Yeah. I mean, it's horrifying. I mean,
1: this is why buddy system was created. Never leave, never separate.
0: I'll talk about it too in our third episode, but if anyone hasn't seen Missing 411, Hunted, probably want to give that a, a viewing on Amazon Prime because it, it does go over a lot of hunters who disappear under mysterious circumstances. I'll touch on it a little bit, not the whole documentary. So definitely go watch it. Um, it's great. My, me and my mom still talk about it all the time. <laughs> I'll watch
1: it. We're recording that one tomorrow. So uh, I, have, I have an evening to, to uh, yeah. be
0: informed. Great. Okay, so on February 7th, 1962, Bud Jenkins and his wife were living in Fort Bragg, California, on the edge of the Redwood Forest. His brother-in-law, Robert Hatfield, was working as a logger. This is logging territory. And he stepped outside of his of their home. So the brother-in-law is staying there, uh, or brother if you're Bud Jenkins' wife. Um, so he's staying there. He steps outside of the home around 5.30 p.m. after hearing... The Jenkins' dog barking. Robert turned to look in the direction where the dog was barking, and it is here that he encountered this extremely tall creature. Its chest, shoulders, and head were peeking over the six-foot-high fence. So this thing is huge because basically it's like nipple up is looking over a six-foot-high fence. So at least eight feet. At least. Its body was covered in fur, it had a flat, hairless face and perfectly round eyes. Running back inside, he goes and he grabs his brother-in-law and his sister and the three of them run outside. Turning the corner of the house, Robert suddenly ran straight into this beast. So this thing in the time that Robert ran inside to go say like to the Jenkins family, like, come out, come out, come out. There's some creature outside. This thing had hopped the fence. And was right around the corner of the house. And so when they whip around to go see where the thing went, he literally slams his body into it. He falls to the ground because the impact is so hard. And then he scrambles, gets to his feet, and the three of them book it, running back to the house. The thing starts chasing them. (gasps) No. As they get to the door and they're shutting the front door, like literally having a heart attack, the creature then throws its weight against the door, which like slams it open and blocks them from closing the door. And Bud Jenkins, he runs for his gun and he screams, I'm gonna shoot the damn thing. And this phrase must have been something that the Bigfoot was familiar enough with Because when it heard, I'm going to shoot the damn thing, it knew that that was a threat and it immediately turned and ran away and booked it into the woods. So after deciding that this creature was surely gone, they went outside, the three of them, and they looked around to see what the damage was. And they found a 16-inch footprint and an 11-inch dirty handprint on the side of the house. Did it have the residue? Oh, do they have it? Like, did they scrape it off or
1: something? Well, this is my favorite fun fact is the like white residue that is left behind is called the Sasquatch Alba Vernix. Oh, I don't know about this. It's it's like because there have been a lot of if you look up Alba Vernix, you'll see like in Bo- Bigfoot handprints or like especially on window panes a nose prints there's this white substance that gets left behind is it powdery or is it sticky like a tree frog i think it's a bit powdery it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like bigfoot has um dandruff oh he's ashy he's a bit ashy or just dirty you know
0: yeah just everyone go buy a gold bond or cetaphil and just leave it outside your back porch let it lube itself up you know give it a little a little jar. He needs some shampoo and conditioner. It, here's the thing: it's living in really dry climates. Well, not always. Never mind. I take that back. It lives everywhere. I'm gonna guess that the Mississippi uh, Bigfoot is not dry. I think down in the swamps, they're they're nicely moisturized. They're they're glowing, <laughs> shiny hair. <laughs> <laughs> the most beautiful hair. The hair is like seven feet long. It's basically just it from, or not it. It's the thing from uh, the Adams Family.
1: They're like the new Garnier Fructis uh, hair commercial.
0: They do the this thing where it shows all the yeah. shine of the hair. <laughs> the fan blowing it in the wind. And then they get like a Neutrogena commercial and it's like the Bigfoot splashing its water, the water in its face. It's like perfectly clear pores.
1: <laughs> I just, I love this. I wish that I had... The ability to create cartoons because this would be amazing.
0: <laughs> I know, it's so good. Oh, okay, so this encounter that Bud Jenkins and his wife and his brother-in-law had, this is one of the more famous reports of a Bigfoot given that it was a group sighting at the time um, and the close proximity to the animal that they had and the attack and the physical evidence that was left behind. Uh, but there were so many more sightings that were occurring all over North America at this time, primarily in the Northwest region where loggers, campers, hikers, and outdoorsmen encountered these encountered these giant hairy wild men. As populations grew and neighborhoods and homes started to push further and further and further into the woods, it was clear that these areas were the habitat of this unknown giant creature. The Bigfoots lived there. And this was nothing new. So now I'm going to go back in time with you. And we're going to be pre-1800s, and we're going to look at what the indigenous people had experienced, what they were saying was in the area, because these are the people who spent the most amount of time on the land before all the European settlers. And so they know what's up. Okay, so to start, we know that in Nepal, they believe there was this wild man, bear, snow, man. That lived in the Himalayan mountains. In the Himalayan system, there is also the Barun Valley, and this is a microclimate. This is a microclimate that has a lot of rain and dense jungle, and very few humans have ever really gone in it. Like nobody lives there. And the last king of Nepal said, "Quote: If you want to go to the wildest place where the Yeti might be, it is Barun." So. There's kind of a theory that perhaps these Bigfoots primarily live in this completely unpopulated, dense, dense forest, this valley, and sometimes migrate up the side of Everest. Why do they do that? I do not know. No one seems to know. There's a lot of things we don't know about them. Yeah. Hey, we don't even know enough about the great white shark. People are like, where do great white sharks mate? They have no idea. And also their path is wild. It's all over the place. Some of them just hang out in the Cape like year round. Other ones are like, watch me go for a worldwide cruise. I'm going everywhere. So we have no, we don't know how eels are made. I always fall back on that. I'm like, if we barely know what a platypus is, we can't say (laughs) the Bigfoots aren't real. We have easy access to those animals. I feel like for the most part, it's safe to say anything is possible. And uh, just go from there. Yeah. Okay. So they might live in this microclimate in burun At least that is what the people in the Himalayas, in Nepal, in parts of China believe. And so the people of the Himalayan mountains think that there is this large, hairy man-like beast who could adapt both to a humid climate and to an extremely cold and dry and lack of oxygen Uh, area, which is one of the world's most dangerous mountains, Mount Everest. So clearly these things are extremely adaptable and it doesn't matter the temperature, the space, the humidity levels, anything like that, because they will live there. They will traverse it. They will make it home. In North America, many of the indigenous cultures had tales of a mysterious hair covered creature living in the forest, primarily in the Pacific Northwest. Um. On the Thule River Indian Reservation, the Yokut tribe painted a group of hairy beings together, appearing to be a family. And this site is now referred to as Painted Rock. And these petroglyphs that were found from the Tule people or from the Yokut tribe 500 to 1,000 years ago. Wait, what? I'm the sentence is all fucked up. Let me re-say this whole thing. Okay. On the Thule River Indian Reservation, There's a site called Painted Rock, which is where they found petroglyphs that are believed to be 500 to 1,000 years old. And these petroglyphs are believed to have been painted by the Yoka tribe, and they depict a group of hairy beings together appearing to be a family. (gasps) A
1: Bigfoot family?
0: A Bigfoot family. Let me show you a picture. Put this in the YouTube as well. So it is quite hard to basically see what the petroglyphs show but I put this sort of like stick figure drawing next to it that depicts what is in the red of the rock. Did you draw the stick figures? I didn't. didn't. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, you might be feeling a little bit skeptical right now and be like, okay, well, I'm looking at this drawing and this could easily just be people. It could have been, you know, some of some members of the tribe trying to just draw people in a creative way. Like, we don't know what they wore. We don't know how they were depicting themselves. But the tribesmen themselves, the Yokut people, pointed out that the largest figure in the drawing with the hair around its shoulders and chest and the claws along its hands and feet is called the hairy man. And reports of this hairy man have been passed down for centuries. Many people still encounter the hairy man on the reservation and along the river in the lower mainland region of British Columbia, the Chehalis people tell stories of Sasquatch, which roughly translated to hairy man. So it's funny because they all call them the hairy man. Pretty much every single language says the hairy man. Well, which makes me wonder if this is kind of like an alien conspiracy that's coming to me. You know how one of the conspiracies is that like aliens at one time spoke to people, and that's what we depict as like gods or our belief of gods comes from alien interactions thousands of years ago. This almost makes me wonder if at one point Bigfoots did communicate with people and introduce themselves as hairy man, since everyone seems to call them hairy man, or is it just that they are literally looking like a hairy man and so it's just what everyone calls them?
1: I kind of feel like it's because they're all hairy men looking... (laughs) Like, like that's almost like saying, I can't imagine that Bigfoot themselves call themselves Bigfoot or hairy man, right?
0: Like, it's too on the nose. It's just odd that no one calls them like the beast or something. It's just, it's too on the nose. It's just, yeah, I guess, you you know, you call them as you see them. You name things exactly as they appear. And this was a hairy man. So the Chehalis people of British Columbia call this creature Saskets, saskets or hairy man is how we got the word sasquatch so it's kind of a rough anglicized version of saskets so we got abominable snowman from a butchered translation in nepal and then we get sasquatch from saskets from the chehalis people of british columbia gotcha They do not think that Sasquatch is an ordinary animal. They believe, the Chehalis people believe that instead it is a shape-shifting creature that protects the forest, which is why I'm like, wait a second, that could make a lot of sense as to why it's so involved in logging territory where, you know, the forest is being destroyed a bit. So that would make sense that these Bigfoots are making their appearance and trying to kind of challenge what is happening with the destruction of the forest around them. Right. They believe that Sasquatch, Saskets can change form and it can change from its physical form into anything. It can be a tree. It can be a rock. It can be another oh. animal. And it's, they think that it walks in two realms, both the spiritual and the physical. So this is almost like already getting into is this some sort of interdimensional being, which yeah. is a, kind of a newer theory that we'll go into in the third episode. Uh, but they themselves, like the the Chehalis people, always kind of theorize that this thing was never fully physically here. And that's why it's near impossible to catch one and to catch evidence of one. I, it's so, I just, my brain goes to so many different questions. Like, is it a spirit?
1: Why does it come here then if it's not of, if it's not an earthbound
0: creature? Like, what what is its intention? I don't know maybe it sees something and experiences something that we can't see and experience that we don't know is here. Interesting. It operates at a different frequency than us. I'm so curious. Me too. Kelsey Charlie, who's a member of the Chehalis community, the Chehalis tribe, he had an encounter of his own back in 2002. He was down by Harrison Lake around dusk when he noticed two Sasquatch drinking from the water of the lake. He said the... This encounter, you know, you would think that after hearing all the stories, it would it would be so fascinating. But he said he was so scared and made the hair his hair stand up on end and he was so afraid to tell people too what he had seen, even though Sasquatch is such a big part of their community because he was like, you know, despite the cultural beliefs and how many neighbors and and grandparents and relatives and stuff talk about Sasquatch and have stories of their own. He's like, it feels very different to have a firsthand account and you never really know he he basically was like I, I was fearful of what people would think but he did eventually tell people the story
1: this is interesting because it it makes me wonder like there are certain creatures like and i'm just gonna say the name once but like skinwalkers and then windy boys and things like that that the native people don't speak about or they don't call them by name and they don't talk about them because of the superstitions and the believed negative consequences of speaking their names. So why then like what is it about Bigfoot that'll that is
0: like very public?
1: Like why why Bigfoot? Yeah.
0: So I guess for the Shailas people specifically, it's because they believe seeing Bigfoot is actually a good sign. They think that it's a blessing that if you're able to see Bigfoot, hear Bigfoot, see footprints, it's some type of good, it's some type of good fortune. And it basically is telling you that luck is going to come your way um, because he's making you be able to see and experience him. And it's kind of like a sign that you should continue to live by the rules and continue doing what you're doing and goodness will come. So they have. Yeah, they have an interesting relationship with Sasquatch because they basically feel like they have this agreement with the Suskets, with Sasquatch, this unspoken agreement, and that they live in harmony with them and they respect the land. And actually, every year the West Coast First Nations they gather for Sasquatch Days Festival. So they have this whole festival where they celebrate Sasquatch. They dress up in Sasquatch attire. They have. Can we go? sasquatch dances they have canoe races they have salmon barbecues it's so great and actually wait, i pulled a historical photo from the first ever sasquatch days festival and this is actually i'll give uh credit to kelsey charlie because he is very involved in the community and doing a lot of interviews about their traditions the ones that he's allowed to share and so he had published this photo oh wow Yeah, it's so cool. But you know what else is interesting? So Kelsey Charlie, even though he grew up as part of this community and had heard a bunch of stories and, you know, there's the, there's quite literally a Sasquatch festival every year. It is Mm -hmm. interesting that he was fearful of telling people about his story because it almost makes me think that there's probably a lot of people in modern day that don't necessarily even in their own community, believe the stories they're being told. They think it's lore, you know, it's part of their culture. Yeah. And so it probably was extremely startling to maybe believe that these are all just kind of fables. They're like fun stories that are passed down and ingrained in who they are as a... It's like Krampus and things like that. Yeah. And then to actually witness the creature, not one, but two, and be like, oh, is real. Yeah. Then you think back to all of the other stories that are part of your indigenous group's beliefs. And then you're like, oh my gosh, are those creatures real? <laughs> you can even say that about the
1: paranormal, right? Like there are so many people, who, like everyone in the world has heard a ghost story or knows that, like the existence of ghosts is, is a possibility, whether they believe it or not. So when they actually have an experience, it does make them question their entire reality. Cause it's like, I've heard all of these before. I didn't believe in it. And now here I am confronted with this. What, who am I?
0: Exactly. It's, I mean, it's all so confusing too with the Bigfoot stuff. I'm like, I I'm a firm believer, but even some of these things I'm like on the fence about. Okay. But continuing with some of the indigenous stories, the Lumi who live in Washington state have similar stories and encounters with these Bigfoot people, these wild, hairy men. The Iroquois in New York have records of seeing the same creature too, only they don't think that Bigfoot bring you good luck. Rather, they warn people against triggering or like being too close to a Bigfoot because they're very aggressive that their body's covered in hair, but their skin is rock hard. It's impossible to fight against. So if you find yourself in a fight or in an encounter with Bigfoot, you better do whatever you can to survive. But fighting it is definitely not going to be the solution because you will not live. These things are aggressive. They're angry and they're strong. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. I didn't – the
1: the imagining them with like hard shell-like skin – underneath their hair is hard is difficult for me
0: but that i can see that like well straight muscle i mean think of even like a gorilla you know like that thing it's straight muscle think about me that's straight muscle straight muscle those are some big (gasps) big guns you got there girl (laughs) watch out (laughs) hunting season (laughs) welcome to the gun show (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just now I'm just picturing it like a Bigfoot festival. This is this would never happen because that would people love Bigfoot. They don't want to hurt Bigfoot. But I'm just picturing it be like a some sort of part of the festival where they're like what weapon would you use? Like what do you use in your pack when you go Bigfoot hunting and you're just like these guys.
1: <laughs> the the sad thing is that some people do want. Like I think some people want to prove the existence of Bigfoot so badly. That they want to kill Bigfoot in order to do so. Or there's like this weird pride thing of almost like exerting their ego and their strength over a creature that they do want to hunt and kill Bigfoot.
0: Yeah, it's like trophy hunting. There's so much wrong with trophy hunting, too, because... A lot of the times, there are these animals that are basically corralled for these people to come just easily shoot. And so there's like also nothing impressive about killing that animal. You didn't track them alone. You didn't like do all of these things even. You basically showed up to a field where this animal was put in, and then you get to just shoot it. It's sad. So Bigfoot researchers have questioned whether certain indigenous carvings like masks and various creatures depicted on totem poles and other cultural artifacts can be attributed to being this sort of sasquatch creature or a depiction of them um however like i was saying in the beginning there is this sort of crossover sometimes and separation between is bigfoot both an entity and also a creature, or is there a creature that is Bigfoot and then separately there's an entity that's similar to it. And a lot of the depictions that people have theorized could be a Bigfoot mask or a Bigfoot shown in a totem pole are thought actually to be, or are basically told by the indigenous groups that no, this is the spirit of someone or, or like an entity that lives in the forest and attracts other spirits. And it's like, you know, the people, the person who drowned on a boat or in a river that helps people pass on. So two very different behaviors, but the depictions of both of these creatures in artwork is sometimes confusing because they do look somewhat similar without added context, um, which I feel provides even more credence that there are Bigfoots because so many of the indigenous communities across the globe have centuries old stories about them and have an understanding of what they are. So if someone was like, is this a Bigfoot? They'd be like, or is this a Sasquatch? They'd be like, well, that's not a Sasquatch, but I'll tell you about Sasquatch. Yeah. So there are still just as many stories, even if they're not always depicted in the artwork. Interesting. So from all these sightings and stories, we know that Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Abominable Snowman, Yeti, Yowie, so many other Hockamock Swamp Monster. Filthy Snowman. Yeah, so so many names, so many monikers for it. It is a large bipedal creature covered in fur, which is often a dark brown or black, sometimes white. It usually stands about eight feet tall, but some accounts have reported the creature to be up to 15 feet in height. It's estimated to weigh around 800 pounds. Its footprints measure up to 24 inches long and 8 inches wide. I think more than that. I think there are some reports to say like 12 inches wide too. A- its hands and its feet appeared to be quite ape-like, and researchers have found distinct dermal planes across the feet similar to apes in some of the castings that are done that are clearly not just like a wooden carving of a foot being printed into the ground. So there does seem to be like particular ridges and, and a movement with... The skin that seems to be similar across some of the castings of the feet, which kind of go again and like try to, it's more evidence towards proving that this creature is potentially real. The creature's eyes are said to be quite round. A lot of people say it's almost like an owl, like they're so round. And sometimes they report that they glow red or yellow. Which we've heard a lot of camping stories where people see like a creature
1: at night in the woods with red or yellow eyes.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting too is I was reading that people were like, well, it definitely couldn't be a bear or a gorilla or something like that because it's something with like bears and gorillas that their eyes don't reflect that color in night or like with a light or something like that. And so it wouldn't be one of those creatures. I don't know. There's there's so much out there to prove and disprove the existence of Bigfoot. But- So, they're mostly seen at night. They're believed to be nocturnal and are usually spotted alone and they try their best to avoid humans, although this is not always true because sometimes they do encounter humans, attack them, uh, provoke them, or stalk their camps and homes. Bigfoot will shriek, howl, growl, and scream so loudly it echoes through the entire forest and it's known to respond via knocking wood knocking. So this is where it will knock on trees in response to people or as a form of communication potentially with other Bigfoots. Um, It is incredibly strong. It has been seen numerous times throwing boulders and ripping trees completely out of the ground. Trees have also been found bent and twisted oddly, indicating perhaps a territorial marking done by Bigfoot because they're done in such a way that couldn't be done by any animal that we know now. And in the last 50 years, there have been more than 10,000 eyewitness accounts of Bigfoot in the continental US alone. So it is clear that we have centuries worth of oral and written history. We have pictographs, masks, sculptures, potential collections of hair, foot castings, other DNA evidence, and thousands of eyewitnesses, yet it has never been caught. But We may be close to finally having proof of Bigfoot's existence, for we are now in the digital era where everyone has a phone on them, and we're getting another type of evidence, video evidence. Are these videos authentic? Are they faked? We're going to find out next week when Sabrina covers hoax or Bigfoot. Or both. Or both.
1: It is so bewildering to me because I feel like we're just tickling the surface, like, It is a little tickle of Bigfoot. There's, I mean, in my research, I was, I listened to so many other podcasts. There's like one called Bigfoot Odyssey, and they just every week have episodes about Bigfoot encounters. So it's like, (gasps) yeah, highly recommend. Oh, I'm going to binge that. Sasquatch Odyssey. Sasquatch Odyssey. Okay. I'm totally going to binge that. It's like a very well-produced podcast about Sasquatch. So I'm just like... I I really wanted to leave this episode, Corinne, being like, I fully believe the one thing I now am really convinced of, and like, it was not even you convincing me of it. I created it out of the things that you were telling me (laughs) is that Bigfoot is God and we're starting a new
0: religion. It's some sort of in-between creature, right? Like, that's what I am starting to believe more and more, that it's not just this, it's not just some animal that we just haven't quite captured and been able to wrangle. It doesn't fully exist. It is somehow in between two planes. And I kind of did this on purpose because it's impossible. I think, I mean, we're doing a three part Bigfoot episode and I feel like it's impossible to get nearly close to everything we want to say. So I did this on purpose, kind of like some quick hits, some random footprints, some odd testing that didn't, sometimes inconclusive, sometimes it's it's fake because This was like the origin of it where it's a lot of confusion. And then your next episode is going to go into some of the more famous accounts, some of the more famous hoaxes. And then I'm going to go from like zero to a hundred with what I told you this episode to my last episode and tell you some horrifying stories. I love it. I love it
1: so much. And I'm here for it. And I'm here for Bigfoot and Bigfoot is God. I do have a listener story. Okay. So, I have a story isn't all Bigfoot, but it actually is great timing because this week that this episode comes out, we have a special episode with the with our friends at National Park After Dark all about Gettysburg. And this story combines both. Oh my gosh, amazing. How did you do that? How'd you find something so perfect? Honestly, it found me. It was fate. <laughs> Okay, this is from our listener, Natalie, and it is called Ghosties and Gettysburg and Bigfoot. Oh my. Hello, ladies, longtime listener, first-time writer. As I'm writing this, my big gray fur baby, Freddy Purr Curry, is curled up on my one side and my other gray fur baby, Princess Ace, is lounging on my other side like the Queen of Sheba. I like to think they're giving me the courage to write these. I have a lot of fun, little, spooky, and some heartwarming paranormal encounters. So strap in. (laughs) Natalie writes, I always get so disappointed when people write, I have more stories. I'll share them another time. No, I need to know now. So I'm telling you (laughs) all of mine. (laughs) Amazing. I've been told in the past that I have a gift. Think intuition on an insane level. Bad vibes got me feel terrible real fast and I'm usually right during situations. So when I was probably around 13, me, my mom, my younger sister and aunt took a ghost tour of Fort Niagara at Niagara Falls. It was a lantern tour at night. And so because we were the youngest and shortest in the group, we stuck closer to the tour guide to be able to hear the tales and history of the fort. Which Corinne, you and I, like regardless of our size, weight, height. We're like front of the pack, no matter what for ghost tours.
0: (laughs) I know we basically hold the hand of the tour guide. Yeah. You're our best friend. Now tell us everything. Tell us the secret stories you're not about to share. Once the whole group stops. At
1: one point we walked into a dark tunnel, that dead ends. And there is a spiral staircase that leads up to a lookout tower. Now our tour guide starts to tell us a story of a guy in a previous tour that was terrified the entire time and would not leave the tour guide's side. Well, as she's speaking, she begins to walk through the crowd to the end of the group and we're plunged into complete darkness. She talks about how as they were leaving the tunnel, this man kept getting shoved because he was walking slowly. So he stopped and said whoever was behind him should just go ahead of him. And so he wasn't holding them up. He'd wait, start walking, get shoved, stop and repeat a couple of times until finally he made it out of the tunnel and realized no one was behind him.
0: Oh, I'm chills instant.
1: So spooky, we thought. So now we're in the back of the group like this guy was. Not scared of ghosts, but very afraid of falling on our faces. So we all grab each other's hands. And I distinctly remember feeling a hand around mine, like close around my hand, as we walked slowly out of the tunnel. When we reached the opening, we looked down and none of us were holding each other's hands. But our fists were closed as if we had been. So like they all felt like someone was holding their hand.
0: What the heck? Oh, ooh, yeah. And to and to have multiple people do that too, where you all walk out and you're confused, and you're like, uh. <laughs> and then also that that means the ghosts
1: are able to mimic the warmth of a human hand because yeah, that's like a very very
0: physical feeling. The warmth and also the the like density of it, right? Like it's a solid hand. It's not just a tingling feeling or wind.
1: Okay. Story number two, my boyfriend now husband and I took a weekend anniversary trip to an adorable bed and breakfast in Gettysburg. We checked in toured the town, took a tour of the battlegrounds and finally moved onto a ghost tour. Now this ghost tour basically split you up into small groups, gave you a bunch of equipment and sent you off on your own through a building. So it's my boyfriend and I and another couple we didn't know were in one room. And from my mid thigh to my left foot, I suddenly get very cold. They scanned me with a laser thermometer and my leg was colder than the rest of my body. So with the dowsing rods, they asked if whoever was hugging my leg could point the rods in the direction it wanted us to go. And it did. I followed the direction (laughs) until it took me to an employee's only door of the museum. I told the entity that I couldn't go in there because it wasn't part, because I wasn't part of the staff and the cold sensation just disappeared. We carried on into a few other rooms with no contact until we came into a room where the ghost said the ladies in the room were pretty. Oh, you cheeky ghosts. What a lovely compliment. I know. The other woman in our group said, well, if you want to hang out with us, you can. To which I quickly said out loud, no, not us. Please stay here. Please do not follow us. (laughs) I guess the ghost didn't take too kindly to that. And for the rest of the night, the end of the tour, drinks at the bar, walking back in the snow, I felt like there was someone there watching me. Even as we washed up and got into bed and turned the lights off, I barely slept and felt so uncomfortable. I woke up early and that feeling was still there. I washed my face and tried to shake it off like I was just being paranoid. And I stepped into the shower, which was a beautiful claw foot tub shower with a curtain that wrapped all the way around. I love that. That's a dream. Me too. But as I'm in there washing my hair, I get this nauseating feeling that if I turned around, I would see a man looking over the top of the curtain at me. I felt so violated. And at that moment, I said out loud, I did not give you permission to follow me. I
0: don't want you here. And I want you to go back to where you were before. Yeah. So creepy. Ew. Now it's way too pervy going from like pretty girls to peeking over a shower. And all of a sudden
1: that feeling disappeared. She said, even writing this now makes me feel sick. Before I moved to Georgia, I took a girl's trip to Gettysburg with my sister and two best friends. I booked another ghost tour with the same company as before, but this time they took us to an old farmhouse that they'd just bought that was once a field hospital during the Battle of Gettysburg. They told us we were the first to tour this house, so they didn't know all the ins and outs of it yet. But they did warn us that some of the spirits were male doctors that did not like women. So we four women made a mental note to get out of whatever room didn't want us there ASAP. Downstairs rooms had no activity for us, but as soon as we went upstairs into those first bedroom the fun started. I mean it. These ghosts were a hoot. Using the dowsing rods, we asked questions, and if it was a yes, the rods crossed. If it was a no, they remained still and parallel. Yes, there were around four ghosts. Yes, they were soldiers. Yes, they were all around 18, and yes, they knew they were dead. We all asked if they thought our clothing, short skirts, leggings, jeans, were strange, and it crossed for yes. Though the spirit box, a word came through. The word was like. Like they liked it. (laughs) Me like. (laughs) Me like. Until that point, it had only been cycling through the white noise. And so that made us laugh. I suddenly felt what I thought was a hand pat my butt and I jumped across the room before saying, Did you touch my butt? What the heck? Yes came through the box and we burst out laughing again in between me scolding a seemingly empty room that you can't just touch butts without consent. They're laughing. They're having a good time. But we wanted others to experience it too. So we said goodbye and moved up to the attic. This room, no, 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 no. Big nope. It was a wide open room with four small crawl space doors that were so dark. They were open. The doorways were dark darker than dark. We were just standing in the middle and I kept wanting to look at a certain crawl space door like I was being urged or told to, but I was overcome with this nausea and fear that if I did, I'd see something crawling out of it. I quickly informed my friends of what I was feeling and they all felt the same thing. We booked it out of the attic so fast and went into another bedroom, but we weren't in there for long either because we ran into a doctor with a mean and sexist attitude. Every room we went into, we asked if it was okay for us to stay. This was the only room where the immediate answer came through the spirit box saying no. So we said bye. Thank you. Sorry. And off to the fun ghost bedroom we went. As soon as we walked back in there, all the heaviness heaviness that we had just experienced was lifted. The air was calm, light, even happy. We immediately fell into chatting again. And we said, we just came from the next bedroom. And wow, he was. And we were cut off by the spirit box ghost saying we know. (laughs)
0: I was thinking all the spirits were a little too gross and pervy but I like that they're like oh yeah that guy we don't like that we don't mingle with him No, like the ghosts
1: all have their own reputation with each other Uh, as our tour came to a close they told everyone to come out my sister and I were the last to leave and as we were heading down the stairs the ghost pucks chived one last time don't go it broke my heart but we needed to say goodbye oh that's so sad but it was a wonderful experience. Now time for Bigfoot. In Tennessee, there is a yearly Bigfoot and Folk music festival around where there had been many Bigfoot sightings. My friend and I went one weekend and that evening there was a Bigfoot walk. Four tour guides broke us into groups of around 10 or so, and we took off in the woods through a hiking trail. We all had headlamps on, but the lights were set to red so our pupils could stay dilated in the darkness. So we could still see where we were going and also see in the darkness. At one point, our guide stopped us and told us a way he would communicate with these creatures is through knocking on trees. So he would knock, and occasionally he'd get one that mimicked his response. So we radioed the other group, telling them that we were going to knock, so that they didn't, and we waited a few minutes and then continued on. A few minutes later, we heard the same pattern of knocks coming from the woods. We all froze and radioed the other groups. None of them had knocked, but they heard it too. We kept walking and we were walking beside a river. We stopped to chill and get ready to turn around when all of a sudden the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. My heart started racing like adrenaline was kicking in and I had to hold my friend's hand to stay calm. It was like all my instinctual red flags were screaming at me to run because behind us, I heard a distinct grunt, almost a growl. Was it a wild boar? Some other animal? Could it have been Bigfoot? I have no idea, but I wish I did. My friend also heard the growl and we quickly informed the guide that feeling passed and we were left pretty shaken. Nothing during the walk had made either of us feel unsafe or threatened until that very moment. We made it out of the woods and back with the rest of the group when someone from another group told us that something had picked up a massive log from a fallen tree and threw it down on the path, blocking them. They needed to climb over this log to get out of the woods. If it was Bigfoot, it didn't want us there. Also, there's a Bigfoot museum
0: close to where I live. So come on over. Okay, see, there's so much strength with the Bigfoot. It's always the same. Like I have yet to hear a Bigfoot experience that has some really, really strange piece of evidence that's different from all the rest. Like all of the Bigfoot encounters have the knocking, have the f- the force of strength exhibited somehow. And so this is, yeah, this is totally a Bigfoot encounter, but how scary too, that you see a giant tree put down on the, on the ground and you're like, well, why is it trying to slow me down? Why doesn't it want me to easily exit if it's right? If I'm in its territory,
1: right? Because it's like, you've already come into my territory. Now I'm going to block you and eat you maybe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's from Natalie. There are a couple more stories that I will read on an encounters episode coming up, but
0: yeah, Bigfoot is real dang bigfoot is real gettysburg ghosts are kind of pervy sometimes at least a few of them that's for sure but but great fun yeah i also love how many bigfoot festivals and um tributes there are in the world yeah i was literally just thinking like oh can we put together a list but i'm like are we even going to be able to find all of them i'm sure there are lists because there are so many there's the one in whitehall new york There is this one in Tennessee. I know there's a ton in like Washington and Oregon. We're
1: going to have to go to some Bigfoot, do some Bigfoot things when we're up in Pacific Northwest.
0: Oh my God. I know we, we have to. People send us your recommendations. Yes. I
1: created an Excel, um, a shared Google Excel with everyone on Patreon. We're going to share it on our socials and it has every city that we're going to, and you can add your recommendations for haunted restaurants, bars, etc. So if like you've like salons you like, I don't know. Just if you're a makeup artist, just put all of your information in there. Yeah. Lovely. Send us on our journey.
0: And come to our show. Yeah. You can find tickets in the show notes of the episode. Also, you can find it in our link tree on our Instagram or on our website, twocirlswaneghost.com. We also have merch for the show we're selling certain merch certain colors at the shows um but if you want to just have your merch ahead of time and sure you get the color and the size that you want go ahead and buy it online on our shop that is also on our website
1: join us by getting lost in the triangle and join a pyramid scheme on patreon we have Campfire Stories every Tuesday. We have bonus episodes. We have ad-free episodes. We're going to start vlogging as we're on tour. You get discounts on merch.
0: I'm just laughing at the idea of us vlogging. I know we're going to, and I've been thinking a lot about how to make it look cool, but I'm like, <laughs> our first foray. <laughs>
1: it's just going to be like quick videos of where we are and what we're doing. It's going to be great. I'm just
0: laughing because we're like 15 years behind. People have been doing this on YouTube for years. And this will be our first attempt. That's our first attempt. But
1: um, watch us on YouTube, rate and review us on iTunes, tell your friends about us and send us your ghost stories at two girls, one ghost podcast at gmail.com. And thank you so much to Christina, our editor for editing our show. We're so grateful for all of the work that you do along with our team, Loren and Avery. Thanks for helping us. We're grateful for all of you.
0: Yeah. Without you, we wouldn't be able to go on tour. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who listens every single week and comes back and also allows us to go on tour. We love you. We're so grateful for you. And for some of you, we'll see you on this side at our shows, but for the rest of you, we will see you on the other side. side.